a THC overdose sucks. Hello and welcome to This is Cannabis from X-Ray FM, the show that takes an insider look at the Oregon cannabis scene. I'm your host, Lee Henderson, and with me in the studio today is my co-host, Emma Chasen, the founder of Eminent Consulting. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. It's a busy week this week for me. It is also a very busy week for me this week. So uh, today's show, I'm very excited about uh, Dr. Adie Ray is back in studio with us. Brilliant woman. Um, she really is something else. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it's going. We're going to be talking about sort of the the problem of high potency cannabis, um, both from a sort of a a physiological, if you will, perspective, but also sort of from a market perspective and a community perspective, um, et cetera. And and I will just say that this um, this question is sort of the thing that got us to do this show in the first place was was ta- wanting to talk about this issue, educate people about this issue, understand it ourselves. Yep. You know, um, and and sort of hopefully. Um, you know, bring bring a, a different perspective to um, to the community here, uh, or to the to the cannabis community in general, I guess, because it's really you know I've it's a strong contention of mine. It's a, it, that the cannabis market here was sort of seems to have at least you know for the moment be kind of for heavy users by heavy users, and I think that's a problem. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of different problems come from that: uh, yeah. public health, political. Uh, industry success. Yeah. So Dr. Eady does a really good job of outlining, uh, especially in terms of pro- public health, all the problems with that. Yeah. So let's go to that conversation now. Boom. So in the past few months, Emma and I have been seeing a real uptick in the number of uh, media stories in my feed, our feeds, uh, on cannabis overdoses resulting in ER visits and related stories on general health risks uh, associated with cannabis use. Some of those stories were definitely like in the bad faith histrionic uh, cannabis causes psychosis causes murder vein, you know, uh, this, those those kinds of arguments that Emma and I covered on episode 24 of the show, the title of which was, Is Cannabis Safe? Uh, but on the flip side, uh, we felt there was a lot of honest reporting that we saw as well. Joining us today to unpack all of this is returning This Is Cannabis champion, Dr. Adi Ray. Hello. Academic neuroscientist and science maven at Smart Cannabis. Dr. Adi, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to be here. Yes. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Um, how are you? I'm great. Good. Yeah. Let's get right into it, all yes. right? Um, you have a very straightforward thesis about all of this, uh, which is the problem is potency. Uh, first off, can can we start, can we explain for the layperson, especially someone who is living in a prohibition state, what we mean by potency? Absolutely. Potency simply means packing the most amount of the active ingredient into the smallest space possible. So if you think of alcohol, you have the most powerful um, concentration of the active molecule ethanol. You have the most concentrated version of that in spirits, whiskey and vodka. You know, those are those are the highest potency alcohol products. The ones that are lower potency, there's more volume, more space, and less of the active ingredient. So you're looking at wine or, you know, sake or, you know, something. Near beer. Yeah. So potency really means packing more of the active ingredient into the same amount of space. And so when we think about this with cannabis products, it is 
really THC that we're talking about. So THC is the primary component that drives the intoxication. Um, some people refer to that as um, psychoactivity, but that, that has kind of a, a different meaning. Psychoactivity is just anything that affects brain function, and lots of things in cannabis affect brain function. But for the purposes of this conversation, we're specifically talking about THC. How much THC can you get into the smallest space possible? Great. So the problem is potency. Again, so I want to ask, am I mischaracterizing your thesis by saying that the problem is potency rather than saying the problem with potency is dot, dot, dot? Well, I, I think that there are actually there's there's there are arguments on both sides of that, because potent products aren't necessarily bad if you're using them in moderation or very sparingly or for a very specific purpose like you're you have a cancer protocol and you need to blast as much of you know the cancer with this very potent product right. so it's not that the problem is potency but there is definitely a problem with potency and in fact there are many problems with it um, and, and even you know thinking about how we got here you know why why do we have all these super potent products and there are a, one reason is very obvious and it's that THC gets you high and that has always been valuable you know like people like feeling high they like that altered state of consciousness there is you know it is a rewarding substance it activates the you know brain areas that create you know uh, a feeling that's good so of course you know the more of it the better that's the thinking but really uh, uh, the reason that we have the situation we have right now which is the vast majority of the cannabis market flooded with potent products you know flowers that are greater than 20 percent THC all of these concentrates in every form and texture imaginable um, one of the things that causes potency is prohibition. So we see this with every illicit drug. Every drug that can be abused, if it's prohibited, prohibition promotes potency because you're literally smuggling this thing. You're trying to pack as much of this product into the smallest space possible because it's being smuggled. So what we have now is really a legacy of prohibition. All of these practices of potency and potent products have been carried over. Um, you know, yes, because they feel good and there might be some value of it, but also, is it necessary anymore? Right. Yeah, it's it, it's it always seems to me to that, and again, I we were talking just before we started recording about how sort of different cultures, different markets, sort of are looking for different things. It seems to me very much that, especially here, possibly in California, although I don't I don't have really have a read on that, um, that the 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 potency um, issue that we're talking about, and and for what it's worth, like what do you consider to be sort of the midpoint? Yeah. Um, I mean, if, if we if we looked at it just mathematically, you know, what is the cannabis flower, the raw? And I'll, I'll start with flower because that really is the foundation for everything else. Um, so if we look at flower physiologically, it's not really possible for a flower to crank out any more than mm, 30, 31 percent THC. And if you have lab results that say otherwise, then you probably have a problem with the lab, not necessarily a right, super Right, the flower. margin of error mm -hmm. or right. a, yeah, something. Exactly. So, so we're, if we look at, okay, 30 
50% is probably the maximum we could ever pump out of a flower. I'm looking at the mean or median and below that. So, you know, right around 15%. This is what we would see from a typical outdoor flower, you know, right. uh, a sun-grown flower. So, you know, that's about the midpoint. And so everything, you know, north of the midpoint is... You know, if you have to split it into two categories, it's either low or high. Um, that's probably a little bit too um, that you know that that's not refined enough. And I think that there are lots of different subdivisions within right. you know teas. But a general rule of thumb, you would you know you had said twenty, yeah, and then but so somewhere between fifteen and twenty is sort of like the yeah yeah okay. So I mean, people look at fifteen percent weed and and you know. Uh, people, well, I should say, people don't ever even really, it seems, get an opportunity to buy 50% Correct. weed because mm-hmm. retail buyers will not purchase wholesale 15% yes. weed to offer to yes. people, um, which exactly. was going to, which I think helps to make the point I was I was going to, which is that, you know, in Oregon, it, the, it really seems like the market was set up kind of by heavy users for heavy users. 100%. Uh, which I think is a problem, um, which we'll get to. But I'm I'm interested to have you explain sort of for our listeners like what the what an acute overdose on cannabis yep. means. We know cannabis is not fatal, et cetera, but you know, these stories that are, you know, continuing to crop up in the media, at least that I see, like with pretty you know, pretty regularly now, um, people and this is I most of these stories are coming out of Colorado, but um, you know, people going to the emergency room. Like what are some of the like negative health um risks associated with this problem of like 32 percent right cannabis yeah or 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 even more so um edibles which are more right potent. and that those are generally the culprits exactly yeah, so so we can talk about that we can talk about the difference between yes high potent flowers which are the foundation for making edibles and for making concentrates and these emergency department visits are or mostly related to the latter too so edibles are you know for a long time that's what puts tourists in in the er um and concentrates that's what's typically putting these you know 21 year old ish males typically who are exhibiting with these like really extreme psychotic kind of symptoms um, which is super scary and very real so what what is it about let's talk about edibles first so when when thc delta 9 thc gets through the digestive system the liver converts it into another molecule 11 hydroxy thc 11-hydroxy is about 20-fold more potent or more um, powerful than the delta-9 molecule itself. So right there, you know, especially if you have a super active liver who's really good at converting delta-9 into 11-hydroxy, that's a really easy way to flood your brain with THC um, to the point where it's overwhelmed. There's like an exponential effect. Yeah, essentially. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So it's that that is particularly that leaves tourists and, and novice consumers particularly vulnerable because they're like, oh, I don't, I'm not ready for smoking, so I'll try this brownie. And you know, in fact, the brownie is even more risky than the flower would have been. So when you asked about what is acute overdose, really, my definition from a pharmacology standpoint is where you cross the line of the therapeutic window. You're no longer 
longer in this nice zone of having the effects you desire and you've crossed that threshold into having undesirable effects. Right. You're paranoid. You feel like you're going to die. Um, you know, you don't understand what's going on. You you know, like there's... You're holding on to a, a horse that's going too fast. Exactly. Yeah. So so really it's that that line. And that, that line, you can have those mild feelings like, oh, I'm having a bad time. I want to go home and like lay in my bed. Or I'm literally going to die. I'm having a stroke. Please take me to the hospital. So there's, you know, sort of several degrees of overdose, um, none of which are lethal. Right. right. It's not fun to have an overdose. And anyone who's had too much of a homemade brownie back in the day before this all s- stuff was all regulated can tell you, like, it is not fun. A THC overdose sucks. Um, but it also is not fatal. So, so that's really the definition of what an overdose is, which, you know, it, there's no real health danger in an acute overdose. But what, where we start to see the greater risks are, are with prolonged exposure to high, um, high levels or, or um, many doses of THC, which then start to put us into this other category of like the risks of chronic potent products or chronic high THC consumption. Tell me more about that. So please. so there are a number of things that happen with um, with chronic exposure to a lot of THC or and potentially other cannabinoids, but we typically, you know, we understand the right, most the about one. THC, right? The first one is hyperemesis. So cannabinoid hyperemesis. So this is a, a syndrome where people feel episodes of nausea and vomiting, which they then attempt to treat with more cannabis. And this is actually a really easy thing to diagnose um, if the doctors know to look for it, which many of them don't. Right. So cannabis hyperemesis is really easy to diagnose because it responds to heat. So people take a hot shower or they apply topical capsaicin cream and the nausea and the vomiting goes away. If it doesn't go away, then it wasn't caused by cannabis. The only way to treat cannabis hyperemesis over the long term is to abstain from cannabis, period. That's it. And we don't know how long you need to abstain, if it's a, if this is a lifelong condition that you have gone in and monkeyed with your endocannabinoid system so much that it'll never recover. That's probably unlikely, but we don't have any evidence. We just don't know. And, and, and again, this hyperemesis syndrome only really presents in people who are using a lot of cannabis, mm-hmm. very potent products over a long period of time. Does it appear non-cannabis-related? So, no, it, and it, there was some thinking for a while that it wasn't actually the cannabinoids that were doing it, that it was like neem or it was some other pesticide or it was some other toxin or right. something. Neem is something that people use in the grow itself to yeah. ward off uh, gnats and things. Exactly. Sorry for- yeah, go. I'm sorry. So, so there were some hypotheses that it was like, no, it's all this. It, these are the toxins that right. are causing the nausea. But no, we have, you know, that we have good evidence now that this is directly mediated by the endocannabinoid system as a result of overstimulating that cannabinoid system. So it's a sorry, it's an exclu- it's exclusive to cannabis use. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay, because I I guess my understanding of hyperemesis was was that it was like. A medical, it's obviously a medical term, but it's like something that people throw around like in an emergency room. That's, it's, a, it's a medical code for for vomiting, right? So yeah. I didn't understand that it was a syndrome or like a chronic 
you know, condition. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So there are lots of reasons that you could have chronic vomiting and cyclic vomiting episodes and chronic nausea. There's lots of reasons for that, you know, morning sickness, for instance. But if if your chronic nausea and and vomiting isn't treated by heat, then it's not cannabis related. If it's treatable by heat, then it is directly related to your cannabis consumption. And is it specifically linked to THC or do they find it with other formulas? of CBD and other minor cannabinoids? I don't think we have enough people who are using those other products mm. to be able to, to gather any evidence about that. The only people we have who present with cannabis hyperemesis are those that are using a lot of THC. So it's mm. extremely likely that it's you know mediated by the CB1 receptor specifically. Um, there are definitely other components of the endocannabinoid system that are involved. The TRPV1 receptors are the ones that are responsive to heat right. and to capsaicin. So, right. And those are a part of the sort of large umbrella of the endocannabinoid system. So the short answer is we don't know. Mm. Um, but it's, it is very likely that THC plays a huge, huge role in hyperemesis. Mm. But hyperemesis is just one thing that can go wrong. You know, we've also got... a you know, there is good evidence to suggest that there is a link between cannabis and psychosis, a link. What that link is, again, we don't have enough evidence. We know that there are, you know, psychosis or schizophrenia. This is a very complex disorder that probably isn't just one disorder, just like, you know, cancer isn't one disease. It's lots Mm -hmm. of different things that can go wrong that result in a cancer or a tumor, um, which is probably similar with schizophrenia. You know, we try to put this label on these collection of symptoms and it's it's quite messy. But we do know that for those people who already have a genetic predisposition for schizophrenia, if you introduce cannabis to them, especially if you introduce it to them at a very young age when their brain is still growing, that's a bad thing because it could either diminish the latency or the time it takes to experience their first psychotic episode. So maybe they were already going to develop psychosis at 23, but if they start using cannabis, they might have that episode at 17. We definitely know that if you consume enough cannabis, especially these super potent products like concentrates and dabbing, um, that if you get enough into the right brain, you're going to end up with these psychotic symptoms, this um, detachment from reality and the paranoia and all of the things that if you didn't know that that person had just taken a dab, you would think that they were having a full-blown psychotic episode, a schizophrenic episode. So there is definitely a link. Who Mm -hmm. are the most vulnerable? people we don't know other than if you're using very potent products then you are making yourself vulnerable to these kinds of symptoms Um, so there's a lot of work there left to be done to to unpack like what what is this relationship and you know the the stuff with alec alex berenson's most recent book you know tell your children right again i'll refer our listeners back to episode 24 of our on the podcast go ahead so so you know this idea that cannabis causes psychosis therefore you know psychosis causes violent crime you know there's a whole lot of logical fallacies in that however the reality is there is a link there is some sort of vulnerability and it would be totally irresponsible to ignore that and just say ah like that's just the naysayers you may not be able to answer this but do you know if the um if we're using can schizophrenia and psychosis kind of be used interchangeably if the psychosis is like latent in a person um could it never would it would it is it possible for it to never be activated if not for cannabis use 
We don't know, right? We don't really know, but that's a great hypothesis. It really is, you know, um, because we have, you know, our society is pretty good at, you know, we, we, we're sophisticated humans who have sort of figured out how to navigate mental health relatively well. Um, so, yeah, it could very well be that someone who had never presented with these symptoms, you know, now this triggers it. But, you know, in a way we would never know because if, you, if it never gets triggered, then... Right. You can't prove a counterfactual kind yeah. of thing. Right. Exactly. Okay. So thank you for that. That's that's interesting. Cannabis use disorder. Yep. This is really the big one. This is the one that almost right. every This is where the rubber hits the road for me. Yeah. This is where this is the one where if you use cannabis, this is a vulnerability period. Just like with alcohol, just like with any other drug that's rewarding, just like sugar, just like gambling, you yeah. know, just like shopping. And it should be noted, like, you study the opioid crisis. So, Correct. I mean, very much like... Yeah. 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 So, this this ability for any rewarding substance to hijack your brain's reward system um, and make you prioritize cannabis or some other substance over the other things in your life, this is the risk that everyone puts themselves at. And and this risk is the greatest with the most frequent use and the most potent products. Right. This is evidenced in the literature. That was going to be my next question. Yep. It, we, we know that frequent use and high potency are directly related to cannabis use disorder. So, you know, the, the signs of cannabis use disorder are that, again, you're prioritizing cannabis use over things like your social interaction. So your, your social life suffers in some way. Your family life suffers in some way. Economic decision making, you know, you're losing your job or you're spending more money on weed than you are on groceries or you're you know, not able to keep up with your bills because you're spending so much money on weed. So, you know, those things are in addition to physical withdrawal, which is totally real. It's very similar to nicotine withdrawal, irritation, inability to sleep. Um, so, you know, and kicking cigarettes is not easy, you know, like people struggle to get rid of their... I've been on nicotine lozenges for 12 years. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, this is not something to just, again, brush under the rug as like the naysayers, right. you know, this, this is a real disorder. Withdrawal symptoms are real. Physical dependence upon cannabis to feel normal is real. And so the best way to mitigate that risk is to diminish frequency and diminish potency, allowing the brain to have a break, regular breaks from cannabis is a very good thing. We've seen with brain imaging studies that even if you give physically dependent cannabis users 48 hours of abstinence and then you put them back in a brain scanner, their brain, the, the CB1 receptor where THC acts, the CB1 receptor looks totally normal, looks exactly like a person who has never used cannabis. So even just 48 hours of abstinence, you're doing your brain a big favor. That's so interesting. So, I mean, yeah, so again, to reiterate, you cannabis use disorder, you feel like the 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 more you use it, obviously, but the the stronger again. Sorry, is that is, are we yeah. using that sort of frame strong and weak or like because yes. that seems to me problematic. Strong and potent are, po are yeah. The yeah. higher the mm -hmm. potency, yep. um, the more likely you are to develop cannabis use disorder. That's right. The risk is the greatest with the highest potency and the highest frequency of use. Right. Well, this was interesting. Um, a resistance to general anesthesia yes. in this prospective is a, surgery yeah. patients. This is a really new one, actually. It, and what's funny, so I was giving a talk to a bunch of clinicians, um, a, a bunch of anesthesiologists who, you know, 
anesthesia and pain relief are kind of one and the same, and neuroscience is really the root of both of those things. And so I, I'm, I was giving a talk to all these physicians who administer anesthesia as their day job. Right. Who knows what they do at night? But um, so these, I had someone approach me after the talk and say, you know, what I've noticed is that for my really heavy cannabis users who are like, you know, proud dabbers, um, they need twice as much propofol, which is the, the drug that puts people to sleep. They need twice as much general anesthesia as a normal patient does. And they need almost twice as much fentanyl as well, Ugh. IV fentanyl. So, Yikes. so there. That's like the old story about the guy on the, the biker on Angel Dust who like picks up a desk and throws it at the cops <laughs> in the police station, right? I mean, they can't, they can't, like a stun gun won't put right. them down. Yeah. Kind of thing. Mm. Jesus, all right. So then I got back from the talk, and literally the next day, a publication came out in the literature describing the exact same thing. So this is now like it's not just case reports; it's not anecdotal. There are there is clinical studies demonstrating that people who use potent products or people who use, you know, on a daily basis, they need twice as much general anesthetic and twice as much, you know, intraoperative and postoperative opioids compared to, to other patients. So, you know, you might be asking yourself, well, who cares? You know, the 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 reason we care is that these drugs are dangerous. Yeah, fentanyl you know? stop your heart. I mean, like, Tom Petty <laughs> yep. died from fentanyl. Prince died from fentanyl, yeah. let alone, like, you know, yeah. and hundreds it, of thousands of other people in this and country even, every year. Even just from a liver perspective, when you pump all these drugs into a body, the liver's got to metabolize all that stuff. And if you already have a, a weak liver um, or, you know, a, a, a weakness in your ability to metabolize drugs, then that's that's a problem. Like, you're, you're you know, introducing a health risk to yourself. So, you know, we're, we're, again, at the very early stages of even knowing that this exists, much less what to do about it. But what we are discussing, you know, amongst the physicians is maybe it's good for, you know, again, for people to take a tea break, like 48 hours before you're going in to get your ACL repaired, you know, like chill out and then allow your body some time to resensitize so that you're not putting yourself at risk for all these, you know, um, side effects of, you know, a lot of anesthesia and opioids. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yikes. Yeah. I didn't like hearing that. That was not fun. Um, Let's talk about, let's continue talking, actually, please, about dabbing and Mm -hmm. like vaping, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, the high temperatures associated with both of those activities, toxins, you know, like, Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I I wonder about this and I've been thinking, knowing we were going to talk about this week, I've been thinking about... um, I recently, a couple, uh, about a month ago, a friend of mine died from uh, brain from brain cancer, mm. and and since then, my wife and I have been talking a lot about like EMFs and like AirPods and you know just sort of like I mean not you know we just it's something that we um, you know kind of talk about and think about. My wife's been doing some research on about you know those sorts of things, and I don't mean to get too far out there on EMFs, but you know like what are the unintended? Con- I guess my so to. What are the unintended consequences, potential consequences of dabbing, vaping in the same way? I I wonder, I've you know, the, the potential consequences of something like Bluetooth, especially like AirPods that are shooting, you know, Bluetooth right into your brain, uh, just Wi-Fi in general. We're going to find out about in 20 years. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. Like, what's, you know, talk to me, talk to us, excuse me, about 
dabbing, vaping, the high mm-hmm. temperatures, is, you know. That... Well, I mean, I think fortunately and unfortunately, we're not going to have to wait 20 years right. here. Like we already have evidence that shows, you know, if you have a dab rig that is too hot, you will break down those molecules in a way that don't get break down under, you know, typical combustion or vaporizing. So I'm talking about whole flower vaporizing. So at a high enough temperature, you break the molecules in a way that they become toxic. And so we see these things, we see these toxic byproducts at certain temperatures, which are very common temperatures with dab rigs. Now, there, there is increasing technology, which is getting around this and making things safer. You know, there are um, companies that make little ceramic discs that you put in that only get to a certain temperature. There are, you know, double layered glass, um, you know, bowls or whatever they call them. I'm not a dabber. I can't tell you what yeah. the piece is called. But anyway, you know, there's double layers of glass, which insulate, you know, the product itself from that those extreme temperatures. You know, there are the electronic rigs that don't require a flame or a butane torch. So there there are technologies which are allowing people to more closely, um, you know, get get low temp dabs, mitigate and, the carcin- carcinogens. And, is and, that and what some it of is? no, sorry. some of them aren't just carcinogens. Some of them are like straight up toxins. They're mm-hmm. just straight up hepatotoxicity. They will just cause your organs to fail. Um, so sweet because a carcinogen is a cancer inducing toxin, okay. but you know, there it's not just a cancer risk. There are just straight up like cellular damaging toxins in, in high temperature dabbing. So that's dabbing. And then with the, the vaporizer cartridges, and I think that consumers are finally coming around to this, right. that, you know, the carrier oils, um, again, at the at higher temperatures can be metabolized or, or vaporized into things that are toxic. So, you know, for a long time, people were using propylene glycol as a thinning agent in all these vaporizer cartridges, which at a certain temperature turns directly into formaldehyde. So, you know. And that's bad. Uh, little. <laughs> so, um, so we're, you know, the industry is getting a lot better at not having those things. So the highest quality vaporizer cartridges, you'll see it's just pure cannabinoids. It's pure cannabis oil. And if it's diluted, it's diluted with like hemp seed oil or something. So we're getting better about that. But it's really difficult from a consumer perspective to know what questions do I ask? Is this a ceramic core in this, you know, heater and what is, a, you know, like, what is the thinning agent use? You know, like those are really sophisticated consumers that have to know to ask for those things or a very responsible retailer who will only carry those kinds of products, which means that they have to know about it and they have to care about it, which a lot of people do, um, but some don't. You know, so a, a lot of, you know, profit is still a motive in sure. many of these Sure, I wouldn't decisions. imagine that. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm, I'm a little more jaded or cynical about that. I don't think that that's going <laughs> to. Sorry. Yeah. Um, well, it's <laughs> even consumers who begin to educate themselves around, like, for example, terpenes, where they think, oh, terpenes are good. I need to look beyond THC and cannabinoids for terpenes. Mm-hmm. But terpenes, especially when uh, added into dabs or other concentrates, can turn into these toxic compounds when heated at the temperature, um, at a specific temperature. I mean, that research came out of Portland State University, where they were looking at terpenes, synthetic um, and food grade, that are commonly added to these cannabis oils that turn into benzene Mm -hmm. when heated at a certain temperature. Benzene, toxin, um, carcinogen. I don't. I, I don't know. Actually, I don't um, know what it is. But but very toxic. You don't mm-hmm. want to 
consume benzene. And so, again, very you need to be very sophisticated in in what you know to know to look for uh, terpenes in whole flower terpene profiles, but that you don't want re-added synthetic food grade terpenes in mm-hmm. your concentrates. Mm-hmm. And so it's a it's a tricky thing for people to understand, and most retailers and butt tenders don't even understand. Yeah. And certainly the regulators don't. Right. Oh, yeah, right. for sure. For sure. And, and actually now, I, I what I could say probably about if we're going to look five or, or ten years in the future, we might actually see some regulated markets banning these kinds of products. Okay, right. like now we know propylene glycol... Nope, that's not allowed. Okay, now we know that like you can't reintroduce food grade terpenes because we can't control how a consumer is going to consume it. So when therefore, can, when it can bust. right, 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 exactly. So therefore, we can't put wax on the shelf at all because we can't put our people at risk of you know like um, putting a toxin into their body. If we can't, if the regulators can't be certain that they're keeping the public safe, then you know they they might very well decide to pull those products. Yeah, I think uh, yeah that that I think that might happen. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The same way, I mean, you're seeing a lot of activity around just like traditional like jewel jeweling, vaping, jewel. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Like whatever yes. the hell it is. <laughs> yeah. Sound like such an old man, but um, you know, just you know, it seems like people are taking a deeper dive into what this stuff actually is. Yes. You know, and um, is it because it's not safe? Right. Yes. It may not be as dangerous as cigarettes. Right. right? But right. like. But when you have like cucumber flavor that you're then vaping, right. which vaping implies that it's at a lower temperature, which when we compare it uh, relatively to dabbing, sure, maybe. But it's still a high enough temperature where it is causing a change in conformation mm-hmm. of these molecules that otherwise through oral ingestion uh, would be fine. Bingo. Right. And that's a big difference is like we have these quote unquote food grade molecules that the FDA says, yes, this is generally safe. Um, but historically, those have only been orally administered. They're mm-hmm. only in food. And we know their safety from the food you know, like uh, literature. Mm -hmm. But when we take those same compounds, apply heat to them, they may or may not be the same compounds by the time they reach the lung epithelium. And then what are they actually doing to that lung epithelium? So this is a whole other kind of conversation. And, you know, if we look at the literature, just really 30,000 foot view, Cannabis smokers don't have more cancer than, you know, um, nicotine or or cigarette smokers. In fact, they might have a little bit less. Um, They don't have more rates of COPD or other inflammatory lung conditions. In fact, they might have less. Um, So we, we, we do know that, you know, Inhaling burning plant matter is carcinogenic, um, but we don't know a lot about when you put those molecules directly onto the lung epithelium, what the hell is it doing? Absolutely no idea. Mm-hmm. No, no clue. And we're a long way from knowing. Luckily, you know, because of the whole e-cigarette movement, that was slightly ahead, maybe five or 10 years ahead of, you know, cannabis legalization. So we have a little bit of data about, you know, what e-cigarette technology does from a health perspective, um, even in preclinical literature. Um, but but so we can glean some of that knowledge and, right. and, and use it Make to apply to this. But, you know, like, honestly, like there's there's a reason that smoking continues to be a very popular method of ingesting cannabis. Um, and from 
you know, just from a common sense perspective, if you think about like let what what is the moderate and and sort of less risky way to do this, and we know that smoking, yeah, smoke isn't great for you. If you had to, if I had to say what's the safest way to consume cannabis, it would be whole plant vaporization at relatively low temperatures. Can you define what that is, just for yeah? So. Vaping, you know, quote unquote vaping is typically thought of as the, you know, the battery with the oil cartridge attached to it. That's but that's not the only way to vaporize or volatilize these molecules. Another way to do it is to take the flower itself, apply heat to it, not in a way that will make it catch on fire like with a butane lighter, but apply heat to it in a little oven that allows those molecules to detach from the cellulose of the plant. And once it's in that gaseous form, it can be inhaled by the person, just like you would on, you know, a one-hitter or a bong or whatever. And so that that is a low-temperature situation. So you're getting around all this benzene stuff, getting right. around all the propylene glycol. The unintended around. consequences of yep. combustion. No combustion. So you're still getting all the good stuff. You are not contributing to, you know, there's all the recyclable stuff to, you know, the the packaging for vape cartridges oh, yeah, yeah. and sure. all that. There's, that's a whole other thing. But, you know, you have an economic way to get all the stuff you need without the stuff you don't. So, so if you were, you know, like if you were going to inhale cannabis, that would probably be the most safe way you could the, possibly the do purest? it. The purest? Would you, is that? I don't know. That no, kind of no. has like a, a judgment kind of connotation. I'm a purist. But sure, like sure. Um, it certainly appears to be the safest. Got it. All right. Um, lots more to talk uh, about. We are going to take a break. You are listening to This Is Cannabis. Uh, our guest is Dr. A.D. Ray of Smart Cannabis, and we'll be right back. Support for X-Ray FM comes from Cascade Record Pressing. As the Northwest's only vinyl record manufacturing facility, Cascade is committed to serving Portland's independent recording artists and record labels. Cascade Record Pressing. Local manufacturing for local music. For more information, please visit CascadeRecordPressing.com. All right, and we are back. If you were just joining us, you were listening to This is Cannabis on X-Ray FM, the show that takes an insider look at the Oregon cannabis scene. My name is Lee Henderson, and with me in the studio is my co-host Emma Chasen, and our guest today is Dr. A.D. Ray, academic neuroscientist and science maven at Smart Cannabis. Thank you for staying with us. My pleasure. Thank you, as always. Oh, you're welcome. Okay. Um, so, so for our second topic, I wanted to sort of open up the discussion uh, by at, like by asking, what are we going to do about all of this? Um, it seems irresponsible and almost dangerous to me that our that the entire economic model of the industry that seems to have developed over the last few years, at least here in Oregon, is predicated on this like a notion or equation that higher potency fetches premium price. Um, Emma and I have always sort of contended on this show that this was like a facile and very frustrating, um, you know, fact due to the kind of poly polydynamic nature of cannabis. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and then, you, you know, you add in this new layer that, that are um, of sort of understanding that is coming out. And this seems to spell to me like real trouble for the industry. You know, like I, I you know, I was thinking, I was joking to myself kind of as we were talking, um, like the title of this episode should be like smoking weed is bad, but it's not bad, you know? And that's why I'm in, that's why I asked you here. Or we asked you here to do this show is because, um, it, it seems like this could, this could really be troublesome or, you know, um, 
uh, for for the industry from the public health perspective, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, but then from like the kind of the politics of it, you know what I mean? Like this all it's how this all works, in my opinion. You know, mm-hmm. this 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 uh, this is not helpful at all. Right. So I wanted to I wanted to sort of open up the conversation and, and say, like, what? What can we do about all of this? Yeah. Well, I I think before we start with what we what can we do, we can kind of, you know, we talked a little bit about how we got ourselves into this mess. And and, you know, the way that I often think about this is that these high potency products really are an experimental drug. If we if we look at all of the things we know about cannabis, everything we have spent the last few decades, you know, systematically characterizing with grants and with research programs, you know, what we have been studying is the cannabis from, you know, China from 5000 years ago, which is nothing at all like the very potent frankenflowers that we see on the shelf. Exactly. So a lot of what we understand about cannabis, um, both its clinical use and its, you know, sort of pharmacology at the cellular level, um, we understand those things from the perspective of a low-potency product. You know, very frequently, I like to say that, you know, we did clinical trials, phase one clinical trials with cannabis in China 5,000 years ago. That is, it is safe for most moderately healthy people. But that kind of cannabis is not the kind of cannabis that most, you know, most dispensaries are stocking. Right. That understanding is not caught up to where we are now. Exactly. And so, you know, we, we do have some history of, of potent products, you know, like Lebanese hash has been around for hundreds of years. We, we definitely have, you know, this, this kind of preparation is a, it has a very rich history in some parts of the world. Um, but, you know, again, those were, that's a very precious product. It was a, a, a religious product, a ceremonial product. And it was not typically, you know, wake up at nine o'clock in the morning every day and, and have your dab before you, you know, get on with your day. Um, so, so you know, I, I really like to take a step back and think about these potent products as truly experimental. We, we don't know what we're doing here. We do know a lot about low potency products, which is that they are pretty safe. They are pretty useful. There are undeniable medical benefits. There are undeniable enjoyable states of altered consciousness that are possible. But you can still have that medical benefit. You can still have those enjoyable experiences without taking all of the health risks on board. Yeah, I mean... It goes back to what I was saying about, um, you know, the the market seems to have been set up by heavy users for heavy users and how frustrating I find that. For sure. And, you know, now now that we are in this situation, you know, if we had a blank slate like these other, you know, you know, states that are just coming on board with their, you know, legal programs, if we had a blank slate, we would probably do things differently because there are lots of consumers out there who are excluded from engaging in cannabis at all because there aren't any products for them. Right. You know, I have many close colleagues who are in the cannabis industry who absolutely cannot partake because there simply aren't products that are low enough potency for them to... To enjoy. To mm-hmm. enjoy. Right. Exactly. So if we... There are, there are a number of things that we need to do to fix this situation. One is that we need to determine 
what products are actually useful and are actually valuable. We know that for some people, these high potency products are useful and valuable, and that's the only thing that they want. Yeah, let me interrupt you right there and just say, like, when, in our first topic, we were, our first segment, we were talking about dabbing, and it may have seemed like we were kind of coming down on it pretty hard. I, I will say I have friends who have medical issues, like you know, ulcer, ulcerative colitis and, and mm -hmm. things like that, that find dabbing. That, you, that specifically dab for that that issue and yep. um so i mean i we don't mean to we don't mean to cast too much judgment we're just trying to we're just trying to educate we're trying to right mm -hmm. exactly and Sorry. elucidate that just those forms of consumption have higher risks associated right. with them and mm -hmm. that there is scientific evidence for that for sure and that's not to say that there are no benefits for them right. or not any benefits for you know the most people who use them but there are, you know, you're absolutely right in that the way that the Oregon market and, and to some extent the California market and Washington and Colorado, um, all of these markets are largely set up, you know, as a legacy from the black market, which was all of these potent products. So the people who were already consumers prior to legalization are still consumers post legalization. And so, you know, now now that we no longer have that requirement, that barrier of like okay we 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 can only buy the dank because it's the only thing available right what else is possible so so asking that question like what is useful to people what's enjoyable to people because you know i, I often think about it's very common for us to like in the summer go over to a friend's house they've got a pool all the adults have a beer in their hand and the kids are in the pool great it's much more rare that you would be in that same situation with your family and you're passing around a J. Nobody's, you know, like I, I certainly would not be comfortable taking a hit of a J and then sitting and trying to watch my kid in the pool. That's that's just not safe. So it would be a lot safer if I had a very low potent, you know, low potency product that had a very subtle shift, right. like maybe a half a glass of wine or a half a PBR. Um, if I had that very subtle shift that, you know, was very short term, um, where I could still have, you know, all of my cognitive function and my motor responses and be able to be in a safe environment. Be where, on the clock, exactly, as it were, as a parent, as a parent or what have you. Yeah. Exactly. So That's how I feel about it, too. So what does that product look like? Right. What, how, what, if it's a flower. We've talked about this a lot. Yeah. As a flower, what percent THC is that for me, which might be different than mm -hmm. for someone else? Yeah. And so... Eight. It, Eight percent, I think. That's yeah. the number I'm gonna. That's the dart I'm gonna throw at the board. And for me, it's probably six or three, yeah. right? So, but we don't really know. So, if we had eight and six and three and one and hemp, you know, then we would have the ability to figure out what what is the watching the kids in the pool weed. Right? right. So that those products don't exist. And there are many more uses for cannabis than we're currently, you know, putting it to use for. Because right now we have like this bucket of products that can only really has a limited range of behaviors and situations that it enables. So what are all the other buckets that are totally empty because those flowers don't exist? So, um, so and really, it doesn't exist because because the economic um, imperative to growers is to grow the the most potent uh, cannabis that they can, and if they can get above that thirty percent threshold, that guarantees a wholesale sale to retail. Yes, and retail is uninterested mm -hmm. uh, in anything under. I would say. I mean, well, I don't know. Let's. I. I 
you know, I would think by and large retail is uninterested in anything under what'd you say, twenty four percent, twenty two. I mean, you'll you'll get a lot lower price right. for it. And so exactly. when when you uh, introduce this segment of like if really you're able spelling, to sell it at all, exactly, yeah. of really spelling real trouble for the industry. I mean, there are many points to it. Not only the public health, not only the political kind of uh, public perception in regards to yeah. the stigma, the respectability, po- but politics. also in the actual like functioning of the industry and preserving the genetic diversity of these right. chemovars. Right, we haven't even talked about that. Yeah. That, I mean, this kind of breeding with a focus on one analyte, the one analyte THC, and just seeing how much you can you can produce from one flower, you inevitably have to lose some diversity in your other compounds to increase that area of the pie chart for this one particular analyte. And you may have to sacrifice also mold resistance and fungal resistance and other things built into cannabis's genome that create the most therapeutic effect if we're Mm -hmm. pulling from the ensemble effect that all of these compounds actually can produce the most efficacious experience for a consumer. And so that is another big piece of this Mm -hmm. to me. And, you know, historically, it it makes sense that a wholesaler would value these flowers more because last quarter, that's what sold. The quarter before that, that's what sold. The quarter before that, that's what sold. So historically, it makes sense to say, okay, like based on the only data we have, this is what is valuable because this is what will sell. But that is a sort of retroactive look at what might be valuable this quarter right now. So if we look to the future, if we attempt to forecast the trends what are the trends that are coming so you know there probably is still going to be some segment of the market that does buy these potent products great so let's keep them on the shelf but what else yes and so if we attempt to do some trend forecasting we're like who's getting left out you know, we know that we have tourists. We just need a Budweiser. We need something that everyone can consume. It's palatable. It's enjoyable. It's not going to cause any adverse effects. Let's get a Budweiser on the right. shelf. And as long and, as you don't have eight of them, you're going to be okay. And, and and so let's think about, okay, well, we have our Budweiser. Now we have our Corona. And now we have our, you know, generally palatable things that are good for most people. And then we can start to get into more niche markets, right? So uh, what's going to sell for women? Because, you know, there's probably some sex differences in what women like and what men like because you know our bodies respond differently to these compounds Um, there are different needs there are different use cases there's the watch the kids in the pool weed there's the go to the concert weed there's the you know like go to yoga and still go to work afterward weed so you know there if we look at what what is the future what's what what lifestyles are out there and how does cannabis fit into those lifestyles and and what kind of cannabis is that? So that requires a much more sophisticated model, right? We can't just look at historic trends and then base wholesale prices on those historic trends. We have to base wholesale prices on what is possible and probable. And that's a much, much trickier position to put the wholesaler in, the retailer in. And we have to kind of take this leap of faith that those consumers will actually be there. So we need to close this loop of like the consumer needs to demand genetic diversity, chemotypic diversity. They want options. They have to they have to say, I'm I'm not going to shop there anymore because they only sell the frankenflowers. So we have to have the the demand for diverse products. Um, And and some of those will continue to be potent products. But we also have 
have to have the supply. The, the, the cultivator has to have an incentive to continue planting that beautiful 6% THC flower. That takes three months from you know seed yes, to fin- being finished up to... It's low yielding. It needs hand holding. It's a, it's a you know very wonderful wild creature, but it takes a lot more effort or more resources. They have to have an incentive to keep planting that flower and if the consumer demand is there and if the wholesaler agrees yeah that has value so i'm going to pass it on to the consumer you know it this is a complex situation that requires a, a really you know forward forward thinking path on the, both the cultivator and the the wholesaler um, as well as the consumer education that that allows them to know that this might be a valuable experience because right now a lot of the consumers only know one thing and that is dank all right let's leave it there mm. dr ad ray Smart Cannabis, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Certainly. This was great. Yeah, it was great. Thank you, as always. Thank you. Yeah. We have to leave it there. You are listening to This Is Cannabis on X-Ray FM, and we'll be right back. This Is Cannabis is brought to you by the Craft Cannabis Alliance. The Craft Cannabis Alliance is a network of values-driven, Oregon-owned companies committed to defining, supporting, and celebrating authentic craft cannabis and building an industry dedicated to people, place, planet, and plant. The Alliance is leading the fight for interstate commerce in legal cannabis through the One Fix campaign. Export is the centerpiece of a successful Oregon industry that will support hundreds of farms and dozens of companies, providing world-class artisan products to legal markets and cannabis lovers everywhere. Thank you for staying with us. You are listening to This Is Cannabis on X-Ray FM, the show that takes an insider look at the Oregon cannabis scene. My name is Lee Henderson, and with me, is, with me in the studio is Emma Chasen, my uh, my compatriot, the, the founder of Eminent <laughs> Consulting. Uh, hi. Hi. It's still me. Still you, still us. Forever. And now is the time when we make recommendations. Me first. You go. Uh, I'm going to recommend a state park in Oregon. I don't think I've done this before, may have, um, but it is Oregon's newest state park, or at least it was last year, Um, and it is called Cottonwood Canyon, and it is so beautiful. It's out east, so it's in the high desert, past the Dalles, uh, and it is just like you plopped into a beautiful postcard painting Mm -hmm. and it's so serene and this past weekend i went out there they just built these new cabins which are so cute and like i like camping i don't love camping Mm -hmm. i don't love sleeping in a tent but i love nature and being there and um cottonwood just built these few cabins that are like beautiful so cute tiny house and so we stayed in a cabin this time and it was wonderful it kind made of the me best of both worlds the sounds best like for of you. both worlds i come from new york i right. like again have always had a, an appreciation for nature i love going hiking i love um being being in the woods and playing in the woods but there are like certain like comfort things that I also love. And so like glamping in this way sure, was sure. wonderful. And we went out there because my sister's in town with like my friend family here and uh, just had an amazing time. And so if anybody wants to 
like check out a really beautiful state park in Oregon, Cottonwood Canyon. Cottonwood Canyon. Yeah. Word. Yeah. Um, I'm not really a, a camping person. Um, yeah. I believe that you said once to me that like the most kind of like outdoorsy thing that you like to do is eat brunch on a patio. Yeah. Although I don't eat really, I don't really go to brunch, you know, so that was somewhat uh, hyperbolic. But yes, I, I, and I don't even really like eating outside actually. I'll be honest. <laughs> Uh, but that was, just sounded, seemed like a funny thing to say at the time. Uh, my and my my older daughter, she and I are very alike in many many ways. And she said something which I have just sort of adopted now, which is um, uh, when we were saying like, "Do you want to do this? Do you want to do this?" You know, we were like, "Want to go to the park?" Or yeah, do something like that as a family. And she said, "I'm really much more of an indoor person." <laughs> and I was like, "Me too." I, mean, I couldn't. Ar- I was like, "Me too." I couldn't argue with it. Couldn't argue with it. I was just it's sort of like such yeah, an unpopular opinion. Amongst Oregonians, especially Portlanders, sure. yeah. uh, people like are really super outdoorsy, yeah. and which some, I love. Yes. I, you know, Amazing. I'm so happy for them. Exactly, I just, I'm a city person. Exactly, um, and I'm kind of like somewhere in between. My my group of friends, we all talk about how like it's so nice that all of us are the same level of outdoorsy, mm-hmm. where it's like we appreciate being out there, yeah. but like like those basic comforts, yeah. like having a cabin instead of a tent. Yeah. Cottonwood Canyon. Cottonwood Canyon. Word. Check it out. All right. So my recommendation this week is this uh, really, truly phenomenal book that I uh, recently read. Um, it is called The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming by mm. a man named David Wallace Wells. Um, and it is um, a book about global warming. And uh, it's very – he's – David Wallace Wells is a reporter for The New Yorker. I believe he used to write for The New York Times. Um it is a very scary book, and it is um, very deeply researched and reported, and um, and it's sort of a look at what happens. It's a look at global warming from a couple different perspectives, but one of the main ones he focuses on is what happens to the Earth at, you know, two degrees warmer, three degrees, etc. And I just wanted to read some of the charming uh, chapter titles um, for to you and to our Please. listeners. Um, in the Okay, so there's Heat Death hunger, drowning, wildfire, disasters no longer natural, freshwater drain, dying oceans, unbreathable air, plagues of warming, economic collapse, climate conflict, um, and climate conflict. So, wow. Um, that's, those are just some of the fun, uh, chapters in that book that, you know, Light if you want to pick this reading. book up, but it's, no, it's a brilliant book. I mean, and I think, you know, it's, it was, it definitely made a splash when it came out. I believe it's still in the New York Times bestseller list. You can probably still see it in the front of Powell's, um, et cetera. So I, I really, really recommend this book as far as taking a, an informed look at, um, the crisis that our planet is it's so facing important it's so important to talk warming. about yeah. and the the chapter titles that you just read i mean while it's easy to like laugh at them and be like oh dismal like it's real and yeah. people need to integrate that and understand it that it's not inflammatory like it is a reality at this point if we do not make like very large changes immediately yeah so that's uh that's my fun recommendation this Thank week. You. Yeah, party on, guys. Uh, maybe go read it in the woods. Yes. Split the difference. Yes. Uh, that does it for this week's This Is Cannabis. Please remember to email questions and comments to thisiscannabis at xray.fm. Also, please be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is at thisiscanna on xray. This Is Cannabis was engineered this week by Amalia Boyles. Shout out. Thank you, Amalia. Uh, And our theme music is The Song Impossible OK by Portland artist Motric. Please be sure to check them out on Spotify. Wubba, wubba, wubba. Good night and good luck. And thanks so much for listening.
Uh, I'm going to do one more real fast, all right? 